Welcome to The Spirit Explodes with Roger Kirby. This is our seventh study in the book of Acts from Acts chapter 6 verse 1 through to chapter 8 verse 3 of which by far the most important thing is the martyrdom of Stephen. Luke, probably guided by Paul's memories of what had happened, sees the teaching and death of Stephen as a major turning point in the progress of the gospel. To this point, opposition has come from the ruling classes in Jerusalem. The common people have approved of what was happening. From here on, the believers lost the support of everybody. Consequently, the focus of the gospel is about to move outside Jerusalem. First, the background in the first seven verses of chapter 6, which we now read. In those days, when the number of disciples were increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on the tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. The Grecian Jews of the NIV probably means Greek-speaking Jews who had retired to Jerusalem, mainly in order to die there. Hebraic Jews probably means long-term Aramaic-speaking residents of the city. Each group would have worshipped in a synagogue where their most familiar language was spoken. When some of each became Christian, tensions arose. The seven chosen men are often called deacons, but only because the Greek word for waiting on tables is diakonia. Their responsibilities do not match those described in the later New Testament letters. However, we can learn useful lessons from them. Question 1. What were the criteria for choosing the seven? Can we relate these to our situation? All seven names are Greek. What does that tell us about the principles used in the fellowship? They were chosen purely on the basis of their spiritual depth. I don't know what happens where you are, but all too often men and women are chosen for positions in the church on the basis of their practical qualifications. Their spirituality is the least of the attributes considered. 
that all of them were Greek-speaking suggests that great care was taken to resolve the problems as quickly as possible. Now we read from chapter 6 verse 8 through to chapter 7 verse 1 which outline the nature of the problem Stephen faced. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? The trouble started in one particularly radical synagogue, the synagogue of the freedmen. This included some from Cilicia, which is where Paul came from, so he was probably a member of this meeting. And now we come to the long speech of Stephen, the longest in the book of Acts. It is not at all easy to see how what he said related to the charges against him and what upset them so much and caused him to be lynched. So I will interrupt my wife's reading of the speech as we go along to try and explain it. Stephen starts his speech by referring back to God's promise to Abraham. What he says is standard Jewish thinking and quite unobjectionable, but he is starting to emphasize the way that Abraham had no firm roots in any one place. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, 
and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abram the covenant of circumcision, and Abram became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Isaac and Jacob were uninteresting to Stephen because they had secure roots in Israel. So he moves on to Joseph, who did not have secure roots. He also points out that Joseph was rejected by those who should have supported him, his brothers. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all in his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went to, to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abram had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. Next comes Moses, again a wanderer on the face of the earth as Stephen is careful to emphasize. He also emphasizes that Moses, too, suffered rejection by his own people on more than one occasion. At that time Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. But they did not. The next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, 
Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After forty years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and delivered by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for forty years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly of the desert with angels who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honour of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings forty years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made to worship, Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. He continues to trace the history of his people, beginning to emphasize the tabernacle as the place where God dwelt. Although David enjoyed God's favor, he did not get building the temple. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers, under Joshua, brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. 
it remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favour and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. He has now set the scene for what he wants to say. He is also, by his strong emphasis on Moses, effectively rebutted the charge that Jesus was going to change the customs of the law. Remembering how the apostles had been treated by these people, he probably had decided he was likely to die anyway, and he was not going to do so without making his points. So he continues by making two points. One, the temple was not as important as they thought it was, as all these great men had lived without it, being prepared to meet and worship God anywhere they happened to be. Even if Jesus had said he would destroy the temple, as he hadn't, it would not have mattered. And two, many of these true prophets of old had been rejected by the people, as Jesus was. They, his hearers, had acted wrongly, but that was nothing new. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the Righteous One. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. He was not exactly diplomatic in the way he put it. The reaction was overwhelming. The veiled argument behind the history is that God is not limited to any one place, in particular to the temple. He is therefore not under the control of the Sanhedrin. Their power is finished. The true next step in the purposes of God is with Jesus and his people. We read from verse 54 to the first verse of chapter 8. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelled at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. Question 2. What are the practical implications today of there being no particular place where the Lord is to be worshipped? In what ways do people wrongly contradict that fact? Cathedrals and the like can be wonderful places, but they don't really fit into the scene Stephen paints. The idea that the temple in Jerusalem should be rebuilt, as advocated by some people, also falls before Stephen's argument. It doesn't matter where we gather and worship. The important things are gathering and worshipping. Question 3. Stephen was obviously a vigorous personality, who was not prepared to keep quiet, even if he was also full of the Holy Spirit. Such people are not always comfortable to live with. What place should such people have in the present-day church? There ought to be room for every personality type in every fellowship. It is important that the leadership of every group uses to the full the best attributes of everyone while curbing their less useful attributes, whether that be making too much noise or too little. Probably it was when Stephen said that he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God that his fate was sealed. Jesus said something similar when he said that the Son of Man would be seated at the right hand of God and that was the point at which they decided to kill him. Both were referring to Daniel chapter 7 where one like a Son of Man approached the Ancient of Days and was given authority, glory and sovereign power. Question 4 why were these statements taken so amiss? These were the clearest possible statements that Jesus was the Messiah and that he would be given the authority and power they, the members of the Sanhedrin, so much enjoyed. Beware the love of power. And finally, we're going to read the first three verses of chapter 8. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned him deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And so the purposes of God started to be fulfilled in the persecution and the scattering of the church until it came to the whole wide world as it is now. Thanks for listening. Come back to Partakers, www.partakers.co.uk 
where every day there is something added to help you in your life as a Christian disciple. Thank you.